We will be in uh, Luke, continuing our way through Luke. In chapter 17 today, we're continuing and uh, through this book, almost two years in, did a little quick research, and we are, this September will be two years, we're well over halfway through, so we're making good progress. And we'll be reading, uh, beginning chapter 17, reading verses 1 through 10 this morning. Now, if you were to come to my family dinner, you might see and hear a lot of things. But one of the things you would actually see is us doing this thing where we do this. Right, Preston? What's this? Wolfpack. Right? Wolfpack. Every now and then we'll be walking by each other and one of the kids will go, Hey, Dad, Wolfpack. And it's awesome because what we're... What we're doing when we do that is we're establishing a oneness, a oneness and a distinction from, of our family from other families and that wolf packs have each other's back. And that's the idea. And that's kind of the lesson, the lesson from today's message. Jesus is actually going to give his pack, his followers, his disciples some instructions. He's beginning to give some instruction today of what it looks like to be a part of his pack to be his disciple. Namely, that to be one with Christ is to be distinct and it is to be different from the world. So there's only two packs. You have Jesus' pack and you have the world. We are to be other from the world. In fact, 1 Peter 1.14 says this. Peter speaking to... The Jews in dispersion, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So don't be conformed to the passions or the desires of your heart, of your former ignorance, of what you, who you used to be. He says, But as he who called you, so there's, there's one who called you, called you out of the world. He called you out of the world. As he is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you will be holy, for I am holy. So to be a disciple of Christ is to be like Christ. To follow him is to be holy as he is holy. You might be saying, Matt, that's kind of a tall order. That's a pretty tall order. How, how is one to be holy like God is holy? How can we possibly do that? And that is a good question. That's a very good question, and I'll say this. It begins with prayer, so we should do that. It begins with prayer, and so let's go to God and ask Him for help in answering that question of how in the world are we supposed to be distinct and different from the world and holy as He is holy. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we come to you, Lord, as a body, as a group of people who love you and desire to be under the authority of Christ and his word. We desire to submit to you by faith. And so, God, we ask, Lord, that your word would come alive and that as it was prayed already this morning, that it would penetrate hearts and that it would bear fruit. And that, Lord, we would not 
hear with deaf ears and see what you're trying to tell us with blind eyes, but Lord, we would eagerly desire to follow you as you have called us to. Oh God, you do this this morning. We know you are here with us. We know, Lord, that you are working in us and that you desire to not leave us as we were when we first walked through the doors this morning, but to change us even, even just a little bit to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So you should be in Luke 17 by now. We're starting in verse 1. Reading to verse 10, he said, he says this. He said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day, and he returns to you seven times a day saying, I repent, then forgive him. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come, come in from the field, come immediately and sit down and eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and then afterward you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, Say, we are unworthy slaves, and we have done only that which we ought to have done. This is God's word for us this morning. May we have ears to hear it. So Jesus is turning his attention to his disciples. That's what we see in, very verse, in the very first verse. And his aim really is to use the Pharisees as an example of what not to do or who not to be. These Pharisees, though they were extremely religious, they were very pious, they were very outwardly religious and very outwardly looking like they were holy, they were actually no different than the world. They were fakers. Big, big fakers, meaning they were hypocrites. They were hypocrites and they were lovers of money. And Jesus is exposing their hearts all along the last few chapters. We've seen it over and over again. Jesus has been exposing their hearts and calling them out as hypocrites and lovers of money. And you might say, well, wait a minute. That, you know, that sounds nothing like us. <laughs> really? Really? Well, Jesus felt the need to, to warn his disciples here, didn't he? And he feels the need to leave it in his word to warn us to not be like the Pharisees. And it's not because it's so easy to distinguish ourselves from the Pharisees. Rather, he desires to warn us because it is so easy in our flesh to be just like them. May we never forget our propensity to be just like the Pharisees, our propensity to be just like these Jewish leaders that Jesus is rebuking over and over again, especially here in the church where individualism and self-righteousness 
It's constantly wanting to rear its ugly head. We should be careful. We should be reminded as we're reading this book, as we're reading this gospel, and we're seeing very clearly who the enemy of the story is over and over and over again, that we too were once just like them, weren't we? If you're in Christ, you used to be just like them. And really, the fact is, is until we see Christ face to face, we are going to struggle in this life to not be like them. It will be a struggle. And that's, that's, that's why there's a warning here. There's a warning and there's a call to be distinct from the world, but not just distinct from those people, but from who we once were, from who we used to be. And so if you have your handout, you'll see that our, our main point this morning is this, that disciples of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, we are distinct from the world by faith. We are distinct from the world by faith. You'll hear me quote some passages as we go through today's message, and most of those are on the back of the handout. So if we want to follow along there, you'll be able to flip the handout over and look onto the back of it and see those passages. But that is our main point this morning. And so as we go through the text, we're going to see three main ideas. Three main ideas of how we are to be different and how we are to be distinct from the world. Okay, the, the first is this. And these are the three points. So you're getting a, a head start. Okay. The world will entice people to sin, but the church, the church warns people of the lies of the world. The church warns people of the lies of the world. Number two, the world is transactional and conditional, meaning they give only to get. They give only to get. The church, where well, we seek and forgive our offenders. We seek and forgive our offenders. And number three, the world will boast about their good deeds. The world will boast about their good deeds, but the church lives by faith, giving glory to God. The church distinguishes themselves by living by faith, giving glory to God. So let's do this. Let's dig into point one. Point one, the church warns people of the lies of the world. Starting in verse one, Jesus says that it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. He says that it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Okay, just a few observations. Okay, the word, the word stumbling block here, the word for stumbling block is scandalon. It's scandalon, and it means to cause to stumble. It's to cause to stumble. And in fact, it's the Greek word that we get the word scandalous from. Maybe you figured that out already. But it, it means to cause someone to sin. And so if, if you look down a little bit and you see the word little ones there, that's, that's whom Jesus is referencing here is the, the valuable person here. Okay? It means small child. It means a small child. And I believe Jesus is directly referring to believers. Believers. His, his children under his, God's care. 
These are believers or children of God under his care. And so I want us to see just in these first few verses just how protective Jesus is over his children. Don't mess with Jesus' kids. Don't mess with the children of God. Jesus, our Lord and Savior, is a protective shepherd. Don't you cause one of his kids to stumble. Don't mess with my kids. He says that it's inevitable that there be temptations. He says that there will be people, there will be people who tempt you, but he gives a very stark judgment, very stark judgment against any person who would even tempt one of his children to sin. In fact, he says it would be better for that person if they would die a very horrible death so that they wouldn't even be able to attempt to tempt a child and then face God on judgment day. It would be better for him if that were to happen. This is how serious. This is how serious Jesus takes sin and those who would cause a believer to stumble. Man, he loves us. He loves us and he wants us to be protected. And so what does this look like? What does this look like? Well, first, I think it's a good idea to help us at least get a a little bit of a grasp around what sin is before we understand what it looks like to cause someone to do it. Okay, And I I get this from 1 John 3, 4. There's a lot of passages to define sin, but I get one from John 3, 4 where it says, it tells us that sin is rebellion against God's perfect law. Sin is rebellion against God's perfect law, which I take to mean is faithlessness. It's faithlessness or distrust in God. That's what it looks like. That's what it means to rebel against him is to distrust him. In fact, Romans 1, 24-25 tells us that sin is an exchange. It's an exchange. An exchange of the truth of God for a lie. In fact, any time we do this, the result is worship of the one who lied to you. To believe the world over God, Romans 1 tells us, is to worship the creation over the creator. Sin is essentially preferring and placing your trust in anyone or anything other than God, and it plays itself in all kinds of ways. All kinds of ways. There's all kinds of deadly fruit that's born from that kind of exchange. Now, for the last few weeks, we've watched Jesus over and over again. As I mentioned before, he has been rebuking the leaders of Israel. Right All the way back even in chapter 15, he gives a parable to demonstrate their lack of love for the lost. He sees their heart. They don't love the lost. They have no desire to show any grace for anyone who actually desires to repent. They don't see repentance as, as worthy of anything. They just, they just don't want anything to do with them. Chapter 16, he rebukes them as lovers of money. He rebukes them as ones who pursue the world and its promises for satisfaction and joy. He rebukes them as ones who say they love God's law, but then they go and divorce their wives. Wife after wife, divorce after divorce, completely rejecting God's law by doing so. They have no love for God's law at all. They have love for self. But remember, remember, these are the religious elite. These are the ones all of Israel looked up to. 
These are the ones that looked really good. They were demonstrating what it was supposed to look like to follow God, to have fellowship with God, to have relationship with God. They were, the, they were setting the tone, and Israel was looking to them. They were looking at how they lived. They were looking at the lives they lived. They were listening to the things that they said. They were considering all that they taught. They were looking at what they considered righteous. And you want to know what their takeaway is? Their takeaway is this. I work, God owes me. I put God in my debt. That's the takeaway. I work, God owes me physical blessings as well. So therefore, I, if I see you and you have physical blessings, you must be a really good person. You must be following God's law. And if I have blessings, that means I must be following God's law pretty well. And if you don't have physical blessings, well, I have reason to separate myself from you and distinguish myself from you because you, you just must be a pretty bad dude. That's the culture. And the, and the Pharisees were leading the way. They were leading the way. This false gospel, it, and that's what it is, it's a false hope. It's a false gospel, and this kind of hypocritical leadership, what it was doing, it was leading people, and everyone who looked up to them, which was everyone, like even probably some of these disciples, at least up until this point, hopefully, you were leading everyone straight to hell. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 23, verse 15. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! Because you travel around on sea and land and you make one proselyte, which means you make one convert to be like you. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. It's bad news. <laughs> That's bad news if you're a Pharisee. He says, woe to you for making people like you. And isn't this the way all false teachers are? We see this running rampant in the church in America, filled with pros prosperity gospels. Obey Jesus and you'll get, you'll get money and clothes and health. You'll get everything you need. You just need more faith. And it leaks in even into the, even into the regular church where we would say, well, that's not, they're not really preaching a false gospel, but they kind of are. They kind of are when they say, well, if, you, if you come to church enough, if you do enough here at the church, then God will bless you. You give, God will give back to you. It's a false gospel. It's the way all false religions are. In fact, really the whole world, meaning that there's no neutral people. Everybody's religious. Everybody is religious because everyone operates out of a belief system. Everyone operates out of a belief system or a worldview that dictates what they do and what they say. And everyone who operates out of this faith, it's what it is, it's either faith in God or faith in self. And everyone who operates out of their belief, they're actually telling everyone what they believe all the time. They're constantly proselytizing all the time. You are, I am, the world is, everyone Everyone is proselytizing all the time. And so, yes, yes, we live in a world where snares will come. It's a very dangerous world. Snares will come. People will want to entrap you in sin, won't they? People will try to keep you from desiring God and desiring what, his life, what he calls life to be because we live in a broken world. We live in a broken world, but... Jesus says, whoa, 
Woe to those people through whom those temptations come. This woe is a word of judgment, and it's for the Pharisees. It's for the Pharisees. It's for the false teachers. It's for anyone who had influence and would influence people away from trusting God towards trusting the, the world. But we must remember Jesus is not talking to the Pharisees. Verse 1, it says he said to his disciples. He's talking to his disciples. So this woe would never apply to his true disciples, but he is saying, don't be like these Pharisees. Don't be like these Pharisees. Yes, don't buy this message. Okay, Don't buy into this message that they're, that they're preaching. Don't buy this false gospel, but also, and more importantly, don't entice one another. Don't entice one another. And that can happen within this group, right? Don't entice one another to trust the world. Don't entice one another to trust the ways of the world by the way that you live and the things that you say. We would do well to listen here in 2022, Community Bible Church. As verse 3, Jesus says, be on guard. Be on guard. This means be aware, be alert, be vigilant. This is the same word Jesus used in Luke 12 when he said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. This, the word or phrase is, is really, it's a, plural, it's a plurality statement. He's saying, beware of yourselves. Beware of yourselves, and that yourselves is plural. So he's talking to a group of people. He's talking to a community of people, an assembly of disciples. And what is he saying? But to you, as a community, as a group of people, watch out for one another. Be on guard. Essentially, protect one another. Protect one another. The responsibility, the responsibility of protecting a community of believers, an assembly of believers from stumbling, it falls on you and me. It falls on us as a body to protect one another from stumbling. Jesus did not say, Peter, beware. He did not say, John, beware. He talked to the group. So hear me. Hear me on this. The elders of this church, the elders of this church are not the only ones who will give an account for this body. They are not the only ones who will give an account for this body. They are not the only ones who are being watched and listened to. You are as well. I am as well. Our children are watching. Yes, our neighbors are watching. The world is watching, but Jesus is telling this group of people that the people in your community, in your body of brothers, are watching. The people in this body are looking to you to show them what it looks like to live out this Christian life to submit to God's word, to proclaim Christ. So it's our job to be on guard together to protect one another. Question. Question. Would a highlight reel 
of your life and just this past week, would it reflect love and passion for the glory of God in all things? Or would it reflect a passion for self and love of money? I'm not talking about perfection. I'm just talking about your heart. Would the things that you did, would the things that you pursued, would the things that you said, would it reflect to everyone who is watching in this body at Community Bible Church that the church is God's plan for the age? Or would it demonstrate that your life and your kingdom is God's plan for the age? Would they see someone intentionally evangelizing their neighbor or ignoring their neighbor? Your life, believe it or not, is enticing people. It's demonstrating to others what it looks like to love God or love the world. People are, the bar is being set by, by us as a body, what it looks like to be holy as God is holy. And we are either enticing one another towards the culture of everything around us, or we're enticing each other towards what God's order to be under the authority of God's word. It is hard enough, isn't it? It's hard enough to be in a world where we are constantly being bombarded with messages from the world of love yourself, love yourself, serve yourself, get, re get revenge. Pride is good. Love of money is good. Get all you can. Best life now. It's everywhere. It's in every magazine. It's in every TV commercial. It's in every TV show. We are constantly being preached at by the world. Shouldn't we therefore in this place and in this body be able to come to a place where we are on guard together against those messages? We're on guard together against those messages and we are actually in a place where we are displaying to one another that the world is going to burn and everything in it. And the only thing that will be left will be the word of God. We're to reflect to one another this truth and compel one another to live as though that this life is nothing and that the next life to come is everything. Do we display that to one another? It's a weighty thing to say, I know, especially from here, from where I stand, it's, but it is the truth. It's the truth, and it's, it's the command of Christ from his word. Point two. Point two, the church, the church seeks sinners and forgive sinners. The church seeks sinners and forgive, forgive sinners. Look again at verse 3. Again, Jesus is saying, be on guard. He's saying, be on guard. Again, he's talking to an assembly of disciples. And this phrase is really kind of the linchpin of the text. It's, it's basically saying to be alert unto what I have already said and to what I'm about to say. So be alert, Jesus says. Don't, don't be distracted. 
Don't be distracted in regards to the things that you teach, yes, and the things that you do. Of course, be on guard to protect one another and not lead each other astray, but also look out for your brother. Look out for your brother. This word brother, it's, it's not your fellow man. It's not the idea of the word. The idea of the word is a like-minded person in belief. It is a like-minded person in what you believe. That's, again, that's you and me. In the context of a local church, doing life together. That's your brother, that's your sister in Christ, right here in, inside these walls. And so we're to watch out for one another and care deeply. Care deeply if someone in this body if he's believing or she's believing any lies from this world. How do we respond? How do we respond if we see someone falling into sin? And that's kind of the idea. It's not one-off sins. It's, it's repeated, habitual, like fellowship-breaking sins. How are we to respond? Jesus tells us, Jesus tells us in verse 3, he says, rebuke, rebuke him. You're to rebuke your brother. You might say, well, wait, 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 wait a minute. I thought that was the CEO's job. Nope. No CEOs in this church. No CEOs. We all look out for one another. We all look out for one another. We will all give an account. In fact, that's the big part. That's one of the big parts of covenant fellowship. It's one of the big aspects of covenant fellowship is, is namely accountability. Accountability. Say, well, Matt, this sounds kind of like church discipline, and I thought that was maybe the job of the elders. Nope. Nope. In fact, the context of this passage, as well as Matthew 18, where we derive a lot of our understanding of church discipline, as well as many other passages in Scripture, the idea of church discipline is not directed at the elders, it is at the body. It is the responsibility of the body to hold one another accountable. So that Luke 17, 3 says this, he's calling disciples of Jesus to be a people, a community of people that confront sin. That confront sin. So we're, we're not just not enticing one another, but we're actually confronting one another too. We're to be those who would love their brother and sister in Christ enough to face them when they are falling into sin. We're to pursue them. Chase after them, as it were. Call them to repentance. In fact, this word rebuke, it means to warn them. To warn them. And to counsel them in the danger of their sin. Because it is dangerous. It is dangerous. But it always is to be done with a heart that is eager to forgive. That's important. You always rebuke with a heart that is eager to forgive. It's easy to rebuke somebody just because you feel like being a jerk. We do that all the time. But to actually pursue a brother or sister in Christ in love, and with an eagerness to forgive them, that's different. That's different. This, of course, means it's to be done humbly. It's to be done humbly as one who knows and really understands their own sin and how much they've been forgiven. 
fact, Jesus tells us how to rebuke somebody in Luke 6, verse 42. You may remember the, the parable of the, or not really parable, but the, the communication of a speck versus a log. Speck versus log, right? He says, before you take the speck out of someone else's eye, make sure you remove that giant log that's in your eye. He doesn't say, don't take the speck out of anyone's eye. He just says, make sure your eyes are cleared up first. And then take the speck out. So we are to remove specks. We are to rebuke our brother and sister, but we're to do it with clean eyes, clear eyes, saying, I know that apart from God's grace, so go I. I know that apart from God's grace, so go I. I have my blind spots. I know my sins. I do not approach anyone in their sin thinking I am more holy than them. I'm going because I love them, and I want to protect them, and I'm eager to forgive them. This is a far cry from the world. This is a far cry from the way the world thinks about sin. The world is passive about sin, passive about sins of others, passive about the authority of God's word. In fact, even in the name of love, they will honor one another's sins. They will be tolerant of one another's sins. But this is not our way. This is not our way. No, not that we aim to offend, but we are to be distinct from the world, different from the world by pursuing our brothers and bringing them by the word of God and by the authority of God in his word into repentance. And then also, unlike the world, we forgive them always when they repent. This is unlike the world who would never pay another person's debt. But that's what forgiveness is. You cancel their debt. You pay their debt. Because we know how much debt has been paid by Christ for us. And when we do this, we shine as a body. When we do this, we shine bright for the world to see that as a community of disciples of Jesus, that we are ones who pursue holiness together under the authority of his word, and we forgive one another. That's different. That's very, very different. Getting into verse 4, Jesus is kind of begins to escalate the scenario a bit. Verse 4, he says, if he sins against you. Now, this word you is not plural. It's singular. So he's taking us from the plurality of the group to the individuals of this plurality. This is for the individual here within the confines of the community. So we see Jesus tell the whole assembly, again, a group of people to be on guard, to pursue one another, forgive one another. But then he escalates it to then if he sins against you. It's one thing for somebody to sin against a community. It's another thing for this person to come into rub with you face to face. That's a bit different. He's saying that if somebody is personally hurting you and personally sinning against you, and and again, a fellowship kind of breaking way, and he's a continuous offender, and he's constantly sinning, and he's constantly repenting, Jesus says, forgive him. Forgive him. And he's basically saying, you will forgive him. You shall forgive him. Meaning that my disciples, they will forgive somebody who repents. This is what my disciples do. It's what my pack does. 
We, dis- we forgive those who repent. In other words, my disciples have an infinite well of forgiveness from those who repent. Is this conditional forgiveness? You might be asking. Is this conditional forgiveness, meaning only if this person repents, is that when I should forgive somebody? And in this context, yes. Yes. We have plenty of other texts in Scripture. We have plenty of other texts in Scripture where we are to forgive without them repenting. There are other texts that demonstrate the the need to forgive without repentance. And we should be able to just understand this kind of logically, right? There are some sins that are fellowship-breaking sins, where repentance is needed for fellowship, for renewal of fellowship. And there are some sins that can be easily overlooked and be forgiven and shown grace. In fact, we're called in other scriptures that that blesses the person who is able to forbear a sin and overlook an offense. There's both. But within the context of a group of people in the church protecting the assembly and guarding the bride of Christ, fellowship within the body can be broken by continual and habitual sin. And so we see that fellowship and forgiveness are kind of synonymously in view here. And that for fellowship to be restored, in that context, there should be repentance. But where we stand apart from the world is not in how we break fellowship. It's not in that we break fellowship, but it's in our love for holiness and in our pursuit of sinners, and in our eagerness to forgive. That's that's where we distinguish ourselves. We are, in fact, most like God. We are most like Him when we are holding one another accountable, when we are pursuing one another in in each other's lives, when we're seeking repentance, and when we're forgiving one another as He forgave us. That's when we are most like Him. Even if we were to break fellowship, Even if we were to break fellowship with someone in the body over unrepentant sin, it is always, always with a heart that desires and unto the purpose of repentance and forgiveness. Always. May we never forget the joy of God when one sinner repents. There's a party in heaven when one sinner repents. May we be like him, even if it's the seventh time that day. May we rejoice with God even over that repentance. Point three. Point three. The church lives by faith. The church lives by faith, giving glory to God. Perhaps after hearing all that I've said so far, you may not have to imagine how the disciples probably feel right now. Maybe you feel a bit overwhelmed. Maybe if you really heard everything that Jesus has been saying so far, up to this point, you might be thinking, like, how? How in the world can I do all that Jesus has commanded us to do even so far? It seems like an impossible task. Like, how can I possibly teach continuously without error? 
How can I live a life that presents the glory of God to my brothers and sisters in Christ in that, in that kind of way is to never lead somebody to stumble? How can I rebuke sin humbly and faithfully? And how can I possibly forgive somebody that's continuously hurting me? Like egregiously, perpetually. How could I forgive somebody like that? Well, that gets us back to the question we started off with. How can we live holy and distinct lives? How do we accomplish such obedience by which we distinguish ourselves from the world? And in verse 5, the apostles, they felt the weight of this question, and their response is a glorious response. They say, Lord, increase our faith. Increase our faith. And what a glorious request. What a magnificent request for man to come to the end of himself and see how absolutely impossible obedience is in the flesh. It is impossible in the flesh. It's wonderful to see how impossible it is to forsake our fleshly desires and to forgive others. That's exactly where God wants us. Feeling the weight of that impossibility on our own. It's a magnificent place to be when you've come to the end of your own ability and when you've come to the end of your own capacity to obey and instead you plead, God, help me. I want to bear fruit. I want to be a forgiving person. I want to be a holiness-pursuing, brother and sister Christ-pursuing, local church-loving person. It's not in me. Help me, God. That's a good place to be. I hope that's where most of you are now. I hope you're hearing all of the commands of Christ and saying, Oh, God, how? Help me. In the request of the Lord, in the request of the Lord lies the answer. It is by faith. It is by faith that we pursue holiness in our own lives and that we pursue it in other people's lives. This is why Jesus says in verse 6, he's affirming their request. Some people think he's contradicting them, but he's, he's not really. He's affirming and adding to it. He says, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Again, Jesus uses the size of a mustard seed. He's using the, the small, seemingly insignificant mustard seed to demonstrate to them that the size of their faith is not the issue. It's not the size of the faith, but rather the genuineness of their faith. A little seed in the right soil bears a lot of fruit. Jesus is saying, if, even if you had a little bit of faith in me, if you had even just a little bit of faith in me, and this is the point, this is the point, genuineness, the genuineness of one's faith is defined by the object of one's faith being genuinely faithful. Being genuinely faithful. Do you remember how we defined sin a minute ago? If sin is the exchange of the truth, if sin is the exchange of truth, God's commands, exchange of the truth of God's commands and God's promises for a lie, 
If sin is to exchange the truth for a lie, then faith is to receive the truth, to believe the truth over the lie. God has given us promises after promises, hasn't he? It's good to know God's word. It's good to have his promises in your heart so that you can have them readily available to you. But he's given us promises after promises, and he's shown himself through the promises, through his scripture, through all about, throughout redemptive history, and even in your own life, that he is a faithful God. He is a faithful God. He keeps his promises. And so living by faith, living, living by faith is believing in and trusting in the faithfulness of God to keep his promises that are attached to his commands. He has commands for you and promises attached to them. And your obedience demonstrates that you believe those promises, that you've placed your trust in him. It is trusting, faith is trusting in the person and the character and the power of God to do what he said he would do. This is how sanctification happens. This is how sanctification happens, grace through faith. I thought that's just how we got saved. We're not just saved by grace through faith. But we are sanctified. We are set apart. We are, we look, we are made holy. We are set apart from the world by grace received through faith. Meaning that God's promises to us and his faithful character to fulfill them and the, the Spirit's power for us to see God's faithfulness is grace upon grace. Let me say that again. God's promises to us and his faithful character to fulfill them and the Spirit's power to open your eyes to see that is grace upon grace. All of which, all of which was purchased for you on the cross. It wasn't free to, to him. It was free to us. It was purchased for you on the cross. And you and I, we received these promises. We receive these promises as we submit to the Spirit, putting our trust in him to accomplish that which he promised. It's all grace. It's all grace. This is what Jesus meant in John 15 when he said, Abide in me. Abide in me and you will bear fruit. You will bear fruit. But apart from me, he says, you can do nothing. It's all grace. In fact, Jesus says that it, if we have even a small amount of faith or trust in him, that we would have his power through this faith to do Ridiculous, miraculous things. I'm not talking about telling trees where to go. And I'm not talking about telling mountains where to go. I'm talking about like obedience to God's word. That's a miracle. I'm talking about bearing fruit. I'm talking about forgiving those that have sinned against you horrifically. And the ability to forgive them, that's a miracle. That's a miracle. Someone who sins against you repeatedly over and over and over again, and the world says, how could you forgive them? Grace. God said it's good to forgive. I believe him. 
more miraculous than telling a tree where to go, is the person who by faith kills the old man, kills the old man, denies himself, takes up his cross, and puts his trust in Christ. More miraculous than anything is that. By faith we trust God rather than the world. The world says someone sins against you, you get him back. Take revenge. God says, love your enemy, and your reward is great in heaven. Who will you believe? Who will you believe? What you do will demonstrate where your faith lies. And that's what's happening when you believe Christ. You are essentially telling the old man who loves revenge to be uprooted and cast into the sea. Moment by moment, moment by moment, trusting in Christ and receiving the grace as you obey, as you trust his way is better than your own. That's what it looks like. So what this means is that all of our obedience, every single act of faithful, Christ-like obedience is an act of grace. All true obedience done in faith is grace given to you by God's power and by the work of the Spirit to help you see that Christ is faithful. Which means we have no room for pride. None. No room for pride at all. This is why Jesus gives us this parable in verse 7. Verse 7, he says, he gives this parable because every act of obedience is first an act of grace on God's part before we could ever obey by faith. As I said, we as Christians, we are living moment by moment by faith. Moment by moment by faith. Every step we take is an act, that is an act of obedience is an act of faith in God to complete that promise to us. And the reason why we might take that step is because we look backwards and we see the bygone grace of God that's happened already. And we recognize the faithfulness of God in the cross. We recognize the faithfulness of God all throughout redemptive history. We see the faithfulness of God even in our own lives. We look back and we see that grace. And in and seeing that faithfulness of God we take another step forward knowing God's future grace will be there for me. His future grace will be there for me. So that means that we are never doing anything, never doing anything to put God into our debt. No act of obedience earns me anything with God. In fact, I had to withdraw more from God just to obey. I had to get more from God just to obey. Romans 11.35 says this, Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? No one. No one. That's what unworthy means. To say I am an unworthy slave, it means I am an unprofitable slave. No work I do profits you anything. We never put God into our debt. But rather we are always and only obeying by falling into deeper Debt to God with every act of faith supplied by His grace. The more you obey, the more you obey, the more grace was needed. And the more in debt to Him you become, and you fall deeper and deeper into debt to Him with every act of obedience. And guess what? This is exactly the way God created you to be. This is exactly where God created you to be, meaning in need of Him. 
in need of him, abiding in him as the supplier of grace and the supplier of promises that you need to fulfill the commands that he's given you to obey. It's a beautiful relationship. He tells you to do something, he gives you the means to do it. All the time. What a gracious God. He never gives you any command that he doesn't supply the grace for you to complete it. What an awesome God who doesn't require us to repay that debt either. In fact, the relationship he wants you to have with him is not one of repaying the debt, but to get into more debt. That's what he wants. Fall deeper and deeper into his grace. Continuously come to him for more and more and more. Grace upon grace upon grace is lavished upon you so that you can obey. This is how we are to relate to him, and it's beautiful. What a loving God. Does it not help you to see that he is loving you by this? These commands, these aren't heavy burdens like the Pharisees put on his pe- their people. These are gracious, loving commands, and he gives you the promises and the grace to accomplish them if you would put your trust in him and receive it by faith. And so the call is clear. The call is clear. Be holy, for I am holy. You're in my camp, Jesus says. Be like me. Be distinct from the world. Shine bright for the world to see. Shine bright as a body, not as just an individual. The local church matters. Shine bright as a body and as a community that is distinct and different in our pursuit of holiness, in our lives, and in one another's lives. Be different in our eager pursuit of forgiving and reconciling with one another. Look out for one another. And protect God's prized possession, his church. And all this, again, is done by grace through faith. Moment by moment, trusting in God's grace and promises to do in us what he has called us to do. This ultimately brings God glory as the author and the perfecter of our faith. 